All of the newest episodes of Note to Self are now available on the Luminary Podcast app. It's free to download, and you can also listen to other podcasts from WNYC Studios, like Radiolab, Two Dope Queens, Snap Judgment, Here's the Thing with Alec Baldwin, and others. Luminary Premium is the only place where you can enjoy the entire new season of Note to Self, plus new original podcasts you won't find anywhere else, from Trevor Noah, Roxanne Gay, Guy Raz, Lena Dunham, and many more. And you can enjoy them ad-free. Start your free trial by going to luminary.link slash note to self or download the Luminary app for free. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Note to Self listeners, it's Manoush here. Uh, we got a little bonus for you this week. This was actually supposed to be next week's show. It is a conversation between me and on the media host, Brooke Gladstone. But um, Kat Aaron and Jen Point, producers of the show, were like, you know what? I think we got to put it out this week. And um, they're actually here to tell you exactly why. I, I know I've been falling down a bit of a rabbit hole on Twitter this week. This is Jen, by the way. The nature of what's happening in our country, the news, it's a little bit hard to figure out what's real. And it's not just like a question of fake news versus real news anymore. I don't know what is happening in our world, Kat. Yeah, I mean, you and Brooke were talking about the nature of reality and the trouble with reality. And this week, it's been like, you know, headline after headline where what you think is real is suddenly not real. Is Spicer in the bushes? Is he among the bushes? Is the leak of classified intelligence fake news or is it real but not a big deal? Yeah, and it's also the whiplash of a bunch of news, a bunch of big bombshell stories happening back to back to back. Just in the past week, we've got former acting attorney general Sally Yates giving explosive testimony about one of President Trump's former national security advisors. And then that got swamped the next day the by next James day. Comey. Right. By President Trump firing his FBI director. Yeah. And I totally thought I was like, oh, I'm going to have to ask Ed Snowden about firing Comey. And then the minute like that came around, no, it seemed really passe to ask him about Comey. I was like, we got to ask him about the cyber attacks and how maybe the NSA was to blame for this. And then just, you know, within the last day, that story has been taken over again. Right. Then the Washington Post drops this huge bombshell about President Trump giving up classified information, which his aides say he didn't do. And then he says he did, says he did, confirms it. Kat, you were telling me it reminds you of something. Yeah, it's like that feeling maybe some of our listeners will be familiar with. (laughs) You're in college, might be chemically assisted, and you're just kind of wondering, like, guys, what if the colors colors I see see aren't aren't even the same as the colors you see? see. Like, how do we know know what what reality reality is, is, man? So you're saying, no matter... Sorry to take the metaphor maybe too far, but you're saying no matter... What colors you see, whether they're red or blue, we're all on a trip together right now. And some of us are having a good trip and some of us are having a really bad trip. It's definitely a strange trip. I would say a long, strange trip, but we're really still like 100 plus days in. Yeah. Okay. On that note, let's go to me and Brooke Gladstone talking about her book, The Trouble with Reality. Brooke Gladstone. (laughs) Hi, Manoush. Hi. This is so incestuous. 
hello, WNYC people, although we don't even work on the same floor. No, we don't. But listeners, you should know that Brooke has been a very generous champion of mine, dare I say maybe even mentor here at WNYC. And now she has the most timely, deep, but uh, what's the word for it? Snackable? I don't know if it's snackable. (laughs) It is snackable. The way that Tom Paine's common sense is snackable, you know? Exactly. You can can slip it in your little purse or in your back pocket. And and it's not like it's empty calories. It's packed with protein, (laughs) not too much sugar, and it's going to fuel you because the name of the book is The Trouble with Reality, A Rumination on Moral Panic in Our Time. Where did this come from? Talk to me about the making, writing a book. I think everybody has found their reality shift, whether or not they were for Trump or against him. This book is trying to explain to the people who didn't see Trump's election as possible what was wrong with their reality, that they couldn't see this coming round the pike. And how do we mend our reality? How do we ensure that it doesn't get further warped by what's going on now? And fundamentally, what is our responsibility in that whole process? And the book itself is an argument. It's a rumination. It's the way that I see the world or I'm processing what has happened actually in the run-up to the election as well as after. Really early on in the book, you describe reality as more slippery than a pocket full of pudding. (laughs) Just because, like, I really like the word pudding and reality in the same (laughs) sentence, which is so you. Sounds delicious. It does. And also, yeah. Messy. Messy, exactly. But pretty early on, you quote the science fiction writer Philip K. Dick. Mm -hmm. And you, he writes, you quote him, that the bombardment of pseudo-realities begins to produce inauthentic humans very quickly, as fake as the data pressing at us from all sides. Or also that fake humans generate fake realities and then sell them to other humans. And when I read that, I was like, oh, he's describing Facebook, I think. But that was, of course, over 40 years ago that he wrote this passage. Right, right. You are a huge science fiction reader. It is true. I also quote Ursula Le Guin in here. I talk about both Orwell and Huxley. And I do believe that reality is kind of a fiction in a way. That isn't to say that facts aren't real, that experiences aren't real, that outcomes aren't real, that we can forge policy based on a common pool of information. I believe all of that. What I'm saying is that the reality that we live in day to day is an amalgamation of what we see and what we don't see. And the seen and the unseen create the world that we dwell in, because the world itself is too complicated and too vast for us to experience. We have to apply filters in order to function, just for basic functioning. And it's those filters and how we form them that creates the reality we dwell in and also left us in the situation we're in now, what I call the trouble with reality. Well, it was almost like we all agreed on what our reality was until 
November. And some then, of us agreed. Some of us. OK, fair enough. And then there was a rupture where some of us realized that actually the reality was <laughs> seen very differently by half the country. And as you say, it sort of started to fall apart. What do you think, what was the nail that sort of got into the crack and then blew it open? Well, how do we form our realities? What are they made of? They're made of what we see. They're made of our beliefs and our values. The belief that information or the availability of information makes people better informed. It seems tautological. But the fact is, it isn't true, and it's never been true. But that's very upsetting to me, Brooke, because it's very upsetting to everybody. In fact, it was because everybody was so upset that I wrote this book. And I always find it much more soothing to know what we're dealing with than to just wander in a fog of formless fears that we can't see our way through. I mean, you wrote that the founding fathers assumed wisdom emerged from information. And stereotypically, to be American is to equate technological development with progress, that this Mm -hmm. idea that we are constantly driving forward Mm -hmm. to a better place, to a better country, to a better economy, to a better citizenship. Are we at a place where we stopped getting better? That was never a smooth line, right? That was always two steps forward, one step back. Right now we've taken, I think many of us fear, a serious step back or maybe a great leap back. But it's always been about leaps forward, backlash, leap forwards, backlash. And usually it's because we have forgotten a bunch of people along the way. These are the people that became much of Trump's constituency. These are the people who said, we've been promised all these things every election cycle and we don't get them, right? So they were willing to let Trump articulate their experience, form it into a reality, and then apply values to it, Trumpian values. Trumpian values that say, Minorities and immigrants are at the root of our problems. Facts that aren't facts, that the crime rate is going up when it isn't. It's as low as it's ever been, lower. But the fact is, is that the facts were never as important as the sense of doom that people were feeling. And they wanted a reason for that feeling. And they wanted an explanation that wouldn't shake their worldview And Trump provided a full-service universe with a reality, with a set of rhetorical points, with a sense of injury, a future redemption, and a leader. And does social media play into that ability to create a new reality? Of course. Social media reifies and strengthens everything we think about ourselves because, well, let's just take, you know— Stormfront and all these other white supremacist groups. There was a time not that long ago where you might hear these guys mumbling to themselves over a beer in the corner of some bar alone. They never need to be alone anymore. These communities can coalesce so easily. Communities of hobbies or of common interests or communities of hatred and 
grudge matching. And these communities, if they coalesce enough, can become a constituency. And certainly social media enables that. Social media is part of what I've always felt about the technology of our communication now, which is that it makes us more of what we were going to be anyway. Mm. If we were really curious, then it enables us to satisfy our curiosity and it causes us to become even more curious because the information is right there. If we're not curious, if all we care about is gardening and volleyball, our world can be precisely that small. And so we don't have a public sphere anymore. We don't have a place where everybody has to walk, which used to be three networks and your daily newspaper's front page. We don't consume information that way anymore. And I'm not going to say that's a bad thing because who was left out of that equation? For a long time, Anybody who wasn't a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant had no role in shaping our view of ourselves and making their values known in defending their rights. But it puts a responsibility on each of us to ensure that we don't fall prey to the seductions of the word is homophily, you know, how we love our own birds of a feather flock together. And it's so easy and it creates a seamless bubble. We're wired to create bubbles, but if we don't leave them, then every few years, all of our separate realities will crash like a multi-car collision on a highway. And then we have to pick up the pieces and start over again. I want to ask you, you know, where we go from here, because we're living half of our lives online. Reality exists virtually for a lot of us online, and it doesn't feel less real. It is real, but the rules are different on there. And is this just us learning how to navigate a new reality? Like, oh, oh, we're on a new planet, and gravity works different on this planet. <laughs> mm-hmm. Huh. I thought that in my reality, if I dropped something, it would fall, but now it floats away. I mean, this kind of reality operates under different physical laws than the reality that we're used to. And that has to do with the fact that what used to ground us was working through and from a common pool of facts. And those facts, because of constant challenge and constant obfuscation and constant lies filling the ether, are now in question. And if we can't agree on a common pool of facts, then we can't have democracy, because democracy is a negotiation this or that, if you're living in two separate universes that are facilitated by the obfuscation of actual fact, then you can't negotiate. And that leaves room for a demagogue. Not saying that Donald Trump is a demagogue. We can leave that to another debate. But why did he understand this? Have you and Donald Trump been like a, in a secret book club together, <laughs> like reading Huxley and Orwell and some of the other people that you cite in the book? Like why did, <laughs> how did he know? Donald Trump understood this from the very beginning 
and he let us know he understood it in The Art of the Deal, which he wrote in 1987. I have this quote. He said, The final key to the way I promote is bravado. I play to people's fantasies. People may not always think big themselves, but they can still get very excited by those who do. That's why a little hyperbole never hurts. People want to believe that something is the biggest and the greatest and the most spectacular. You know, Brooke, when you say that, you are reminding me of this great article by Farhad Manju in the New York Times magazine. We'll link to it on our website. But he quotes this Joshua Reeves, who's a co-founder of a human resources software startup called Gusto. And Joshua Reeves says, I have this engineering brain that wants to go to this analytical, rational, non-emotional way of looking at things. And it was clear in this election that we're trending in a different direction toward spirited populism. And I guess, you know, that's kind of what worries me when I think about the future of our reality, we're very much in in the hands of people who have very rational engineering minds who say, well, if this reality is not working, let's create a new one on Mars. Or Mark Zuckerberg saying that I can create a new community where the new reality is connectedness and openness all across the world. They're wonderful ideas, but um, these fundamental rules, human nature still Human nature is the biggest impediment because we have to live in the real world even as we live in our heads. And the real world takes a huge, huge effort. You have to go literally out of your comfort zones. And the fact is, is that when you do, and if you hear something that threatens the reality that you've built for yourself, makes you kind of sick. I don't know if you've ever experienced that you read someone who presents you with information that you believe that directly violates something else that you absolutely believe. And it creates a kind of cognitive dissonance that is far more than intellectual. I mean, this happens in your gut. The world starts to break apart and you're completely confused. You feel really bad. I try and ease you into a place where your reality may not be quite as watertight as you would like it to be. You know, Neil Postman, who wrote a book called Entertaining Ourselves to Death, wrote in the prologue a comparison between George Orwell's world of 1984 and Aldous Huxley's world of Brave New World. Do you want me to read you what that is? Yeah, do it. He wrote, and I quote, What Orwell feared were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book because there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much information that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared that the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared that we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared that we would become a trivial culture, preoccupied with some equivalent of the feelies, the orgy-porgy, and the centrifugal bumble puppy. In 1984, Orwell showed us a world where people were controlled by inflicting pain. In Brave New World... They were controlled by inflicting pleasure. Mm. In short, Orwell feared that what we hate will ruin us. Huxley feared that what we love will ruin us. I'm with Huxley. 
Because with augmented reality and virtual reality, there's going to be a sense, and I've tried it myself, is that when you go back to the regular world, it seems flat and literally there's not as much information and, wow, it's really hard work to be in the real world. But even so dissatisfied... You're talking about, though, even beyond the information, the stimulation. Yes, and that's yes. what That's what Huxley called the orgy-porgy and the, yes. and the feelies. We're so hyper-stimulated all the time. You've talked on your show what happens neurochemically when you hear that you've got an email. Yeah. You know, we're already in a state of hyper-stimulation. We can seal ourselves into our own fundamentally masturbatory bubbles and never look outside because it seems kind of dreary out there. Mm-hmm. But it isn't. You just have to give yourself a moment to be and not just a receptacle for information. Give yourself a moment to experience things yourself. I mean, I actually think it wouldn't be a bad idea for some of us to get off the coasts and maybe get out there in the real world. But even if we don't, the middle of the country is to some extent available through the same technology that keeps you so distracted and unwilling to see it. Fundamentally, if you want to feel comfortable in this world, it's going to take work. People are learning to live with a reality they don't understand I'm advocating that they take some steps to try and understand it. Gladstone, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. In the words of the Gen X poet, Winona Ryder, reality bites. I really don't know what to say after that conversation. I don't know. Turn off your, take your headphones out, go walk around. Look at the sky. Let's all take a deep breath. (laughs) And um, the Note to Self team and I will talk to you soon. For now, I'm Anish Samarodi.